Hello, good evening, good day everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit show. I hope you're all doing very well. So as always, before we get into the questions, let's see who all are there, who all is there on the live stream, on the live chat. I can see uh, Giuseppe Di Fraia, Nishant, Dhruv, Liger, Exasperated Farago, Shivagami Devi, Martian, Illuminati Creek, Unique Tutorials, Devashish, Saurabh, Ashwin, Anshu, Anup, Surajit, Om Bekerikar, PK, Sudhir, Sahil, Devraj, Bharat First, G. Chaudhary, Unhuman, <laughs> Praveen, Melvin, Paul Greystone, Paras, K8991 Gaming, Tukesh, Aman, Priyanshi, Akshay, The Rockstar, Strangely Proton, Sriram, Abhinav, Surya, Deepak, Manohar, Arun, Nishant, Anup, Dipto, Nilesh, Supermania, VNT, Dr. Amit Ruparellia, Aditya, Amisha, Vinay, PK Kaushik, Priyanshu, Pavan, Shweta, Utpal Chandra, Harsh, Vinod, The Harwood Butcher, <laughs> Nishant, Piyush, Aditya, Dhruv, Red Chili, uh, Manmat Tiwari, Ravi Raj, Chi Jinping, Pumin Dui, uh, Anup Ketani, PK, Vikrant, Son Darang, Rakshita, Pramod, Indian Mastiff, and lots and lots and lots of other people. I can see Chiching, hello, uh, Deepak, Manmat, uh, Illuminati, and lots of other people. So I, I'm going to stop here now because it, otherwise I can do this all day and all night. Uh, so yes, uh, so with that said, with uh, I I cannot greet everybody obviously. I can see a million more greetings. I I am so glad to have you all. Thank you so much for being on the live stream. Right now, let's get into the questions. What questions do we have? As always, we have very interesting questions. So what do we have? Where do we begin? Let's begin with uh, this. So here is demonetization, and I had this video a couple of I mean a few weeks ago. I had answered a question about demonetization or something like that. And I said that uh, demonetization wrecked Pakistan's economy. So uh, lots of people uh, disagree with this. And uh, so let's let's take a look at what people are saying. Suddenly, Pakistanis forgot to print money. That's not what's stopping them. This is only theory and logic. Why haven't they be, been able to print new currency notes? Not convincing. Ha ha ha. What's stopping Pakistan from printing new Indian currency notes after 2016 due to GPS-enabled currency note feature? Ha ha ha! I think it's absurd. Pakistan still has a currency, a printing press, and new currency is very easy to print. Now you can print it with a normal printer. Yes, A4 printer. Go to the shop. Here's the here's the currency note. Thus copy dena. Rishikesh says Pakistan had factories to print the Indian currency and blah blah blah. If they are so good, then they would have continued. It's just, it's all coincidence. It's all far-fetched imagination. So um, this is just a sample of the comments that I have got about people who say that Pakistan would have continued printing the currency after we got the new currency. So I am completely wrong and I'm it's not convincing, convincing and so on and so forth. That's what people are saying. So... <laughs> Uh, okay, let's let's get rid of the questions on the screen. Yes, ah, there's more real estate now. Yes. So... So people, a lot of people seem to be under the impression that if you have a printer which prints money, 
then when India comes up with a new format of the currency notes, then Pakistan just has to get the currency notes, put it in the printer, do a Xerox copy, 10 copy dena, 100 copy dena, million copy dena. That's what people seem to believe. You know, some time ago I had said this on, I don't know which, which episode I had said this, that I am very glad to see that Indians are less naive nowadays. Well, clearly, I'm going to have to eat my words here because Indians are still incredibly naive. I'm not saying Indians are stupid. There is a difference between being naive and being stupid. Indians are not stupid. Indians are very intelligent. But Indians are incredibly naive right now. If you look at these questions, it is naivete. And I can see people who apparently seem to be very, you know, quite senior and quite educated who are saying such things. You think it's so easy to, pr to, to print any... Then why can't Pakistan print the US dollar? Or the or the or the euro. Why? If they still have the currency, the the printing press or whatever it is that these guys are talking about, then if it's so easy to print any currency, even if you change the currency features and everything, then why can't they print billions of US dollars, billions of euros, billions of whatever else? Why? Think logically. Use a brain. You, you the gods have given you a brain. Use that, right? India changed the currency. See, <laughs> India changed the paper on which the currency is printed, first of all. And it's not paper. It's cotton fiber. It may look like paper. It may feel like paper. But it's cotton fiber. It's 100% cotton fiber. And India changed all the security features on the currency notes. It's not child's play to replicate all that. What Pakistan, well, I'm not going to go into the details, but what Pakistan seems to have had is an authentic printing machine of the Indian currency. India was getting its currency printed elsewhere, outside of India. And you need this specific ink, and you need all those features. And you need to be able to do that. So let's say you have a printing machine, and the ink, and all the ingredients that went into printing the 2016, the currency that existed before 2016. After India changes everything, that printing machine is going to be worthless. Okay, that, that entire process is going to be worthless. So I just don't, I mean, I think it's this is the fault of the education system, that people don't understand these very basic things. And you will say that the education system doesn't teach us about how currencies are printed and all that. Well, I would say, why doesn't it teach that? I think everybody should know these things. Your teachers and your textbooks in, your, in the education system doesn't teach you any of these things. These are extremely important things. We have to understand how these things work. How do security features work in currencies? Earlier, we used to have a thread and in, in, in a watermark and whatnot. Now the, the features are totally changed. And they are very hard to replicate unless you have the actual original printing machine and the same, uh, the kind of cotton that India is using now for the currency notes and all those things. It's not child's play. It's not like you go to a Xerox ki dukan and you put the currency inside and say, das copy dena. That's what people seem to be believing. I mean, look at these comments. Look at these comments. This is just a small sample of the 50 or 60 comments, 100 comments I get every day about this. It's so incredible to see the, the naivete that people are laboring under. So, uh, Clearly, I was wrong when I said that Indians are less naive nowadays. No, I was wrong. I'm going to have to eat my words right here. So uh, I would I would like to request everybody, please, don't... And <laughs> People are unwilling to think. 
if someone says something, why don't you first investigate whether it may be right or wrong instead of just giving you your knee-jerk reactions. Now you're wrong. Now you're this. Now you're that. Ha ha ha. Think about things properly. Everybody has a brain. Everybody has an intelligence. Use that. Look it up. All the information is available online. How are currencies printed? What are the security features that India has introduced after 2016? Do you think it's so easy to print currencies? Then why don't you go to your local Xerox shop and get your currencies printed? You can do it, but it won't work. Nobody will accept those notes because everybody will be able to say that clearly say immediately that those are fake. So please understand how these things work. It's not child's play. The Indian government is not stupid. Yes. So yeah, that's that's what I have to say. Please disabuse yourself of these simplistic notions of how the world works. The world is much more complicated than, than what you think it is. I just I can't believe the kind of comments I get in these things. Good God. Ah. Anyway, let's move on to something uh, else. All right. Umbrella Corporation. The reason why India can't leverage from this 470 Jets deal is, which is 100 whatever billion dollars worth, is because there's no other option in the market other, other than Airbus and Boeing. If India tries to pressurize and try to leverage, leverage this, they will simply say, don't buy the Jets. And there's no other company who manu that manufactures passenger jets. Airbus and Boeing act uh, work as a cartel. They have complete monopoly on aircraft manufacturing. They will never allow other companies and other countries to enter into the market. Previously, Bombardier, Canadian company, used to make small passenger aircraft, but Boeing used its lobby and destroyed Bombardier aircraft market. The same thing Bom Boeing did with Embraer, a Brazilian passenger jet manufacturer. It still exists. Embraer still exists and they still have good planes. Uh, both of these companies have absolute monopoly. Yes, uh, there's more to this. Uh, don't you think India needs to collaborate with other nations to manufacture passenger aircraft to break the monopoly, the cartel of these two Western companies? Imagine how much employment we could generate in India if we have the technology and could manufacture those 470 aircraft in India. We are paying $100 billion to the Western thugs. I believe aircraft manufacturing to be one of the most prominent decisive factor that differentiates a developed country from a developing country. And all that, yes. So uh, I totally agree with uh, what uh, Umbrella Corporation is saying that Airbus, and that's the deal, right? Airbus and Boeing uh, are, are a monopoly. It's a duopoly, essentially. Uh, uh, Airbus is French, Boeing is American, and these two control most of the aircraft manufacturing industry, more than 90%, I would say. The Russians have the Yakovlevs and, and, and uh, uh, Sukhoi 100 jet and all that. The Russians have the ability to manufacture their own aircraft. They, they have num a number of companies that uh, manufacture passenger aircraft and have the capability. And, you know, originally in the, in the 20th century, in the 19, 1900s, uh, the Russian uh, company, Aeroflot, used to, uh, it used only Russian manufactured passenger jets. So you had Yakovlevs, you had Tupolevs, you had, uh, I forget the names, I, I was a kid back then, a little kid. But yes, I found those Russian, Russian jets very interesting. They were not the most aesthetic-looking jets. They were kind of ugly and clunky to look at, but they, they worked. They did the job. So, you know, so they had Yakovlevs, they had Tupolevs. I'm sure they had... Okay, these days we also have the Sukhoi 100 and all that. So the Russians have the ability to manufacture jets. But uh, the, the Americans and the French have gone way ahead of them. Way ahead of them. 
uh, Embraer, you used to have McDonnell Douglas, which was a very interesting, very good company. They used to have the DC-10s and all those planes back in the 1980s, 1990s. I'm sure those are no longer... I, I don't remember last time I saw one of those jets, you know. So they've been all phased out, I'm sure. I think one of these companies merged with Boeing and so on. Uh, so yes, now you have a duopoly. Embraer does exist. They do make good aircraft. They they don't uh, typically serve the uh, commercial market. Uh, they, they do have... Uh, those corporate jets and, and small passenger aircraft. And they have large heavy lift planes as well that could serve as military transport aircraft and all those things. So Embraer is a good company. They have they, they have been around for the, for the longest time. Uh, I'm sure since, since the middle of the 20th century. Uh, so yes, so the deal is that essentially if you want to buy aircraft, passenger aircraft, you have to go to either Boeing or Airbus. Uh, the Russians don't seem to be quite in a position to supply hundreds of jets. Neither is Embraer in, a, in such a position. So that's the deal. That's the duopoly that these two companies have. And they essentially have elbowed everybody out of, out of the market. Obviously, they manufacture really good planes, except for certain aircraft which have been problematic, like the uh, like there were these two Boeing crashes recently. Yeah. One in Indonesia, one in somewhere in Africa. But yeah. So they have this monopoly. And that's the reason why, even though India has placed an order for 470 aircraft, we still cannot you know, extract any technology out of them. They will simply say, we, we are not willing to give you technology. We'll give you the aircraft. And if you insist, then you can go look, look elsewhere. And there's nowhere else to look. That's the reason why this uh, the, the people who are claiming that uh, India should extract geopolitical advantage or, or technology transfer from, from all this, they seem to be badly mistaken. And I see some some very senior people saying that India is is the Indian government is being stupid and all that. I mean, come on. Yeah. So so that's that's a deal. Now the other question is about. Uh, should India collaborate with other nations? Well, I, well, you know, one possibility is India should go ahead and, and buy the Embraer company. The Indian government or a private firm should go and buy Embraer. Whatever it costs, buy it. But I'm sure it's not as, as easy as it sounds. I'm sure there are obstacles to doing that. I'm sure the Americans won't allow this to happen. Uh, and so on. Uh, India could possibly, like yesterday I was speaking about this on the Indian Interest podcast, that the Russians have offered uh, joint production of the Sukhoi 100 uh uh, aircraft, which is a regional jet with a with a with a range of about five thousand or so kilometers, roughly, give or take, and a capacity of about a hundred passengers. So the Russians are are saying that we are willing to co-produce this with India and manufacture this jet in India. I think that's an interesting uh, offer that they have made, and we should certainly look into that. Uh, that would certainly, uh, well, uh, you know bring a lot of employment, generate a lot of employment in India. And obviously, we could we could pay for the technology. So we could start manufacturing those jets in India. And then once you have one piece of technology, one jet that you manufacture, you can take it forward, you can, you know, use that as the base model for creating more, more, more aircraft. Like we have the Tejas LC, Tejas Mark 1, which is the in original initial model, but that's not the final model, we're going to use the the learnings that went into manufacturing, into designing and manufacturing this aircraft, into making better aircraft. So that we have the Mark 1A, then the Mark 2, 
and then we are going to have the uh, twin engine deck based fighter and the AMCA which are all going to be based to some extent in some way or the other on the original Tejas design. So once you have an aircraft that works then you can start creating a family of aircraft based on the original design by tweaking and modifying the design. And, and that's how it goes. That's typically, you know, how aircraft designs evolve. So uh, we have opportunities. The Russians, well, the, the Russians are kind of in a corner right now uh, because of the Ukraine conflict. And they would be more willing than otherwise to cooperate with, with India when it comes to joint manufacturing of uh, and joint development of various aircraft and all those things. So I think it's a great opportunity for India. And India should certainly go ahead with this. If you know, if India had the industry to manufacture large passenger jets, then it would generate millions of job in jobs in India. Imagine India places an order within India. You know, imagine Air India places an order within to an Indi with an Indian company to manufacture 470 or 500 aircraft. That's going to create an explosion of jobs. Uh, you know, it's going to generate millions of jobs in India. So uh, I think it's high time India takes these things seriously. India's, you know, it's kind of disappointing that India doesn't, uh, things move very slowly in India, especially when it comes to cutting edge science and technology. Uh, so yeah, it, I think I think the government needs to take this up very seriously. Uh, so yes, I agree with all the things that Umbrella Corporation has said over here. Right, next. Okay, Anantakrishnan says, what are your views on unidentified objects popping up over the US and Canada? And Neer says, what do you think about the Ohio chemical leak that blasted a train and why is no one asking questions to the USA? Is it anything else than what they are saying? Interesting question. So let's put some stuff on the screen. Yes, uh, the week when I was not here, when, when I did not do the live stream, this thing happened. The Ohio... Uh, chemical explosion which is massive incredibly massive explosion let's put that on the screen some of those things uh where are we right so take a look at these tweets from some people this is uh alex stain uh a journalist i think it's a journalist a, a host of some tv thing okay a massive explosion and poisoning of american citizens should be a much bigger story why isn't the media taking more talking more about ohio uh yeah, so it's it's a major thing. It's it's a very major disaster. It was visible almost from space. Uh, the mushroom cloud and the, and the and the chemicals that went into the atmosphere, uh, very toxic carcinogenic chemicals, and and there, there are reports of um, animals and birds and chickens and fish dying all over the region. But it's being hushed up. And it's very surprising such a big disaster happens and the president of the country doesn't even bother to go there. So it's it's very surprising. A controlled release burn is kind of is a weird kind of corporate double speak. This is this is will hurt millions of people in Ohio and Pasadena for years to come and so on. Yeah. So vinyl chloride is is an extremely toxic and carcinogenic chemical. And it was not the only one. There were many more toxic chemicals. Uh, and yeah, this is a whole thread by this gentleman Eric Feigelding uh, about this. It's 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 being compared to Chernobyl, and uh, apparently it was totally entirely preventable. 
so yeah it's it's a, it's a very strange thing that nobody in the us is taking this seriously seriously the media was quiet for the longest time but social media brought this up and then the media had to speak about it to some extent uh yeah mass casualty incident being reported massive explosion at a metal manufacturing plant in bedford ohio so this is a different thing but even this is something that's happened and once again it's kind of being uh, hushed up then you have environmental scientists that were uh, heading to east palestine ohio where where this thing happened so there was a plane load of scientists who were going there environmental scientists and the plane crashes apparently very strange very mysterious uh <laughs> coincidence there are no coincidences so you know you know it sounds like all conspiracy theories but you know there are no coincidences coincidences uh why while you're looking at ufos and balloons uh yeah nord stream is fine so the 50 car train derailment in east palestine ohio which was controlled burned fish and wildlife are, are turning up dead all over the place the fallout is at least 200 kilometers wide this was february 14 today is february 26 it must be much much more and then they are talking about balloons and ufos look at the shiny balloon ignore what's happening in ohio that's essentially uh, what the us media is trying to do uh, more this is in tucson arizona more hazardous chemicals leaking all over the place something weird is happening in the us i mean obviously it's a large very large nation geographically much larger than india and i think there are more than a thousand trail derailments every year in the us but something is weird uh, look at this toxic chemicals being spilled all over the place and all that and there's this interesting tweet uh, by jessica abraham <laughs> so where is east palestine the the plant uh, the trail the train derailed and exploded this is all about february 23 so all these things that that are happening seem to be in a very specific location uh, in the great lakes region uh, ohio the balloon was shot the chinese balloon was shot down uh, over lake huron no it was not shot down over lake huron they discovered it over lake huron or something then there are there are two train derailments explosion of a plant a third train derails a 7.5 acre fire so you you know these are all apparently coincidences yeah, well it's hard to believe these things are coincidences so these unidentified objects these so called ufos that are popping up all over the us and canada these are the, it looks like these are being used to distract the the public the citizens of these nations from what's from other things that may be happening so yeah yeah you had a train that derailed and this enormous explosion happened and huge release of of vinyl chloride and other toxic chemical chemicals into the atmosphere but forget that L- look at the ufos yeah there are ufos all over the place so the the us government for the longest time treated people who talked about ufos as lunatics they would be locked up in mental institutions and all that you know so anyone who spoke about ufos or 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 expressed a belief a non skeptical belief in ufos would be treated as they were mentally deranged and you know there were there were repercussions severe repercussions to expressing such beliefs or ideas or thoughts for much of the 20th century but now the us government the us military itself is releasing videos and images and all those things of these things there's a sudden change in tactics and strategies you know so uh so it looks like it's a diversion diversionary tactic they're trying to divert the public's attention from other things that may be more important and may 
you know be the people should know about it but so th- that's what's happening so what do i think about the ohio chemical leak it's, it's a disaster it's an environmental disaster it's it's uh, well, i'm not sure if it can be com- con- compared with chernobyl but yes people are indeed comparing it with chernobyl and the media tried its best the us media tried its best to to kind of you know not speak about this but social media is a whole different beast and it's all come out in the public so yeah that's the deal that's what's happening and i'm not sure what's the objective of all these things but yes these are things that are happening and they are perplexing samarth says with the west including france being rigid and hegemonic at the g20 are they okay uh, how will india be able to mediate and solve the russia ukraine conflict do you think it would have been easier to mediate if we were atmanirbhar and didn't have any dispute border dispute with china how will india be able to mediate and solve the russia ukraine conflict the question is why should india mediate and solve the russia ukraine conflict is it our business no why should india get involved in this why should india mediate why should india solve this problem whatever india does whatever the government of india does whatever efforts the government exerts have to promote india's national interest that's all why should we play the role of a mediator and problem solver for the world do are we paid for that do we get any benefit from that why should india solve this problem think about uh, how things have gone after the russian invasion of ukraine has india has it been harmful for india or has india benefited in some way from this i would say india has benefited greatly from the uh, the events that are a fallout of the russian invasion of ukraine now india is getting enormous quantities of very cheap russian oil uh, not only there india is able to export uh, processed petroleum products to the, to the west uh, and so india is, is india is it's a win win situation from india in two ways and uh, it's it's uh, certainly uh, boosted india's geopolitical uh, stature uh it has not worked out in favor of china the chinese were hoping for certain things which had not happened to a significant extent because of india and india's actions so i think the ukraine war has been good for india i, I and and you know i may sound like a nebil guy for for talking like this but that's how geopolitics works that's simply how it works so why should india go and put a stop to what's happening let it continue the world is changing the old hegemonies are slowly eroding for the longest time for almost half a millennium it's the english speaking people who have ruled the world it's the europeans who have ruled the world now it's high time things change and things are changing so i don't think india is india needs to or india wants to or india should mediate and solve this problem india should find creative ways of benefiting from what's happening there are problems all over the world these are not india's problems uh so so that's that's how i see this it may sound <laughs> cynical and kind of evil and selfish but yeah that's how it works in geopolitics every time there's a problem it's an opportunity for other nations or even for for the nation that's involved so that's how it is so i you know and i don't know about the 
West being hegemonic at the G20, there is no hegemony or, or geopolitics at the G20 level. G20 is about economic cooperation and, and diplomacy and, and things like that. The G20 is not a very significant organization when it comes to geopolitics. It doesn't change any geopolitical outcomes or shape any geopolitical outcomes. It's more about soft power and more about economic cooperation and such things. There is no hegemony there. Right now, India is the president of the G20 and India is doing very well. India is expanding uh, the activities more than any other nation has, do has done. So, yeah. So, I think India should not waste its time. India is not doing that. India is being very realistic and pragmatic. India is not wasting its time trying to negotiate with these nations, Russia and Ukraine, or trying to mediate or trying to solve the problem. India is benefiting from it as it should. Okay, Rodrajit Sarkar says, why did France leave NATO in 1966? Can it happen again? <laughs> Interesting question. Uh, 1966. What was the situation like in 1966? Uh, John F. Kennedy was dead and Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson was the president of the US at the time. If my memory serves me right. 1966. Uh, at the beginning of 1966, India's Prime Minister Lal Bahadur Shastri mysteriously died in Tashkent. Uzbekistan, then USSR. And the president of France was Charles de Gaulle at that time. So what happened? France did not leave NATO in 1966. That's not what happened. What France did, see, NATO is, is essentially, we know, we have spoken about this lots of times. NATO is a US-led organization. It's been created by the US. It's, it's uh, the US satellite states in Western Europe. That's what it is. It's a military alliance. And uh, the U.S. has treated Western Europe as a buffer zone to keep Russia, the USSR, away. And now it's expanding eastwards, and that's what led to the Ukraine war. So in 1966, what France did, see, what the demands of NATO are quite stringent. The demands of NATO, any, any nation that is a member of NATO, to some extent or the, or the other, and more rather than, than less, has to accept a collective form of control over its armed forces. Which means your army, your armed forces and their assets are no longer really yours. They come under the command structure of NATO. Yeah, That is a loss of sovereignty to a significant extent. And if you are a nuclear power like the UK and France, then there is a demand and there is an expectation that you will integrate your nukes, your nuclear deterrent, with that of NATO. So once again, your nukes don't really belong to you. They belong to NATO. And you, you, are, you will integrate your deterrent with that of the other North Atlantic powers. That's again, loss of sovereignty. Now, when it comes to the UK, the UK was deeply beholden to the US. It became, to a significant extent, as a an extension of the US after the Second World War because it was deeply indebted. So they had to uh, accede to many of these demands. Uh, they, they discontinued their, their ballistic missile and rocket program. They had a very good space program, the UK. They had excellent rockets and it was all dismantled because of budget cuts and whatnot. That, that was the excuse that was made. But you know, the Americans did not want the UK to have an independent space program they wanted UK to be toothless. And again, the UK's nu nuclear deterrent, their nuclear warheads, are placed on American missiles, not on British missiles. 
It started with the Polaris program, I believe, in the, in the 20th century. And I'm not sure which missile they use today, but it's American missiles. And I doubt very much, very strongly, whether Mr. Rishi Sunak actually has the nuclear button at his disposal. I don't think so. I think the UK's nuclear deterrent doesn't be, really belong to the UK. It mostly belongs, it actually belongs to the US. I don't think Rishi Sunak has the nuclear button at his disposal, all right? Or whoever is the prime minister of the UK. Margaret Thatcher would have had it. John Major would have had it. But after Mr. Blair, Mr. Tony Blair, it all went haywire and, and didn't go haywire. The, the control passed to the US, most likely. Uh, so this was the demand that was made on the French. The French were not willing to integrate, to, to place their nuclear warheads at America's disposal. Essentially, that's what it means. And they were not willing to accept American control over their armed forces. When you say accept collective NATO control over your armed forces, it means you accept American control over your armed forces. So France did not withdraw, withdraw from NATO. France withdrew from the NATO military command structure. It still remained an active member of NATO after 1966. So French officers, military personnel continued to serve at the NATO headquarters in Brussels. And uh, they, France did continue various activities, uh, military activities other, and other activities in coordination with other NATO members. Uh, for instance, you had the, the, the Balkan conflict uh, in the 1990s and the early 2000s. The French were definitely part of that. The French military was part of that as under the NATO uniform, uh, under the NATO uh, alliance. So France was definitely a part of NATO, but it refused to do certain things. The critical things such as control of nukes and control of your armed forces, those uh, the French declined to accept those demands. So French, the French withdrew from NATO's military command structure and they rejoined it in 2009. They rejoined in 2009. So they lost a little more sovereignty in 2009. So that's the deal about this NATO uh, saga. France left the NATO military command structure in uh, 1966 and rejoined in 2009. A gap of more than 50 years. Was it 50 years? Roughly 50 years. Roughly half a century. All right. The guy says... As you said in your previous videos, that ISRO should get more finance. Yes. What are your thoughts on the Indian government reducing the budget allocated to ISRO compared to the previous year? I think it's terrible. I think it's uh, extremely disappointing. Um, you know, I, I don't know what's the reason for this, but your space program is something that you invest in long term. It's going to pay you back in the long term, not today. So if you're cutting down the budget of ISRO, it, it's kind of short-sighted behavior. You you will cut down the budget and allocate the money somewhere else. But, you know, ISRO, I don't know what ISRO is up to. You need to have a long-term vision and plan. And you have to implement it step by step by step. Look at how the Chinese do things. Look at, how they, how, look at SpaceX, for instance. 20 years ago, SpaceX did not even exist. And when Elon Musk decided to start SpaceX, he first went to Russia in the hope of purchasing uh, a couple of ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic, missi ballistic missiles, for a few, maybe tens of millions of dollars or something, so that he could take that re or, you know, reverse engineer it and then start building rockets for SpaceX. The Russians laughed him off. 
So then what he did, Elon Musk, is he hired ex-NASA rocket engineers and, and, and of other folks who had the background. And then they started, crea- went ahead creating a rocket, the first uh, SpaceX rocket, rocket from scratch. And there were at least two or three launch failures, which is, which is to be expected when you're starting something new. A rocket is extremely complicated. Something or the other can fail and then the whole thing uh, fails. But eventually, on their last possible try, when they were running out of money, the rocket launched, launch went off and they were able to uh, gain government funding and that's how SpaceX took off. And today they, they, they are on the verge of launching the most powerful rocket humanity has ever made. In, in less than 20 years, they've gone this, this far. What is ISRO doing? Hardly anything. SpaceX has more than 100 launches easily per year, rocket launches. They have several rocket launches every week, at least one a week. If you look at uh, it on a monthly basis, multiple times a month, at least 10 times a month. So they are launching so many rockets. They are doing so much business. What is ISRO doing? Nothing. Very little. I'm not I'm not passing any kind of negative judgment on the quality of India's scientists and engineers. I'm not doing that. That's what I'm, not what I'm doing. There doesn't seem to be any ambition in the leadership uh, when it comes to the leadership of ISRO. And I'm not talking about the leadership within ISRO. I'm talking about the external political leadership. Because ISRO is entirely controlled by the Indian government. And whatever, whatever ISRO does is explicitly something that, that has been told, that, that it's been told to do. It's entirely controlled by the Indian government, ISRO. So the, the whoever is the chief officer doesn't get to decide what ISRO is going to do next. That's not how it works. So if ISRO is doing nothing, I'm not saying it's doing nothing, but it's doing very little. I mean, when was the last time ISRO came up with a new rocket? Yes, recently ISRO came up with a new rocket, which is a tiny rocket for launching little, little satellites. Instead of making building larger rockets, more powerful rockets, we are building tinier, punier rockets. I'm sure there's a reason why it's doing that. That's to make money. It's to launch small satellites. The purpose of ISRO is not to make money for India. The purpose of ISRO is strategic. It's to make India a major space power, if not the greatest space power. And nothing is being done on that front. Very disappointing. When was the last time ISRO came up with a new, more powerful rocket? The GSLV has been under development for more than a decade. Yeah, they have come. They, they come up with various different iterations and versions of the GSLV, slightly more powerful, slightly this, slightly that. I would like to see a ten times more powerful rocket come up. We have the ability to do that. It's not being done. In the by the end of the twenty first century, the two or three nations that are leading the world in space exploration are going to be the two or three nations that control the entire world. And India is showing no ambition to catch up. The Chinese are not some geniuses. India can surpass China in, in as much as little as a decade if we provide the funding to ISRO. But that's not happening. There doesn't seem to be any vision. Now, where, where is ISRO controlled from in the Indian government? I'm not quite sure. I don't have, I'm sure we can look it up, but yeah, let's not do it right now. So it is extremely disappointing. There are some random here and there, some, some you know, some programs. There is this Shukriyan program to send a, a probe to, to Venus. There is the new Chandrayaan program. It will happen this year or next year or whenever it happens. The third one. The first Chandrayaan was in 2009. It went well. The second one was in what? 2019. A decade later. 
it should have been six months later or a year later. Very disappointing. And yes, there was an issue. It did not succeed entirely. The lander failed at the last possible moment. So why didn't we send a new one six months later? We still haven't sent Chandrayaan 3. I don't know what's happening. There is no leadership. There is. No, I'm not saying there's no leadership. There is no ambition. And there, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any ambition to make India a great space power. India is going to be left behind very badly if it continues like this. The Americans are returning to the moon. The Chinese are extremely focused on their moon program. They will also soon send people to the moon. SpaceX could send people to the moon very soon. A private company. Where's India? It's extremely disappointing. So, so the fault entire is entirely that of the government of India. It's not the fault of the scientists and engineers at ISRO. They so mm-hmm. one one option is to is for you know people to is for us having private uh, companies that that uh, build rockets. We've had a company recently that launched a small rocket, which was more like a single stage missile. But yeah, why not? Good. So we would like to see more of that. But I'm sure there's a lot of red tape in the. Uh, in the business sector and all that. So, you know, you know, it's very disappointing to tell you the truth. What's happening with Israel? I mean, Mangalyan, we had Mangalyan, when, when was it? 2014, 2015, somewhere there. Why haven't we followed up on that? S- to, uh, why not send a more powerful, a, a, a better uh, robot, robotic spacecraft to Mars? Why haven't we done that? The Mangalyan eventually powered off because, you know, there's only a certain amount of time that the battery can last. So it, it was successful. We did a good job. We got back four or five images back from Mars. And after that, nothing. I don't know why. So there's there's a lot that can be improved. And I, to be very honest, I'm extremely disappointed with the government's attitude when it comes to Israel. I'm sure we need to spend money on other, play, on other, other things, but there's a lot of wasteful expenditure also. There are so many programs that are all, you know, that that can be cut cut down to some extent, and the money could be allocated to ISRO. We really need to be serious about space exploration. I know there are votes to be had and elections to be won and all those things, which is also very important. I'm not saying it's not the case. If you lose an election, everything goes to hell. So yes, you have to win elections and all that. You need to get the popular vote. Most people don't understand what what's the big deal about space. I understand, but you still need to fund the space program because that's the future in 20 years 40 years you know if india is is not caught up with china or the us we're going to be left behind way too badly remember in the 1990s in the 1980s and 1990s pakistan and india were neck to neck when it comes to the economy today india has gone so far ahead of, of pakistan that the pakistanis can't even compare themselves with india anymore so that's what could happen to isro vis-a-vis NASA and SpaceX and the Chinese space program in the next 20 years if you if we continue with this attitude there needs to be a 100 year vision of, of where India needs to be when, when it comes to space exploration in 100 years and we need to start working towards that it's not happening very disappointing that's all I can say about this okay Linda says this is a this is from Twitter <laughs> why is the English language so you know what yeah why can't I spell toast as toast well toast also gives you toast but yeah we have to write it as toast there is so the English language is so incredibly arbitrary the grammar is incredibly arbitrary the uh, 
spellings of words are incredibly arbitrary. The pronunciations are incredibly arbitrary. Why is it so? I mean, why can't you just write the letter Q instead of Q-U-E-U-E? Why just not Q? So it's extremely hard for a non-native English speaker to learn the English language. That's why people make so many spelling and grammatical mistakes. And in India, if you make spelling and grammatical mistakes in English, you are regarded as somebody of inferior intelligence, which is pathetic, which is wrong. So why is the English language the way it is? Why is it so? Well, it's not a problem with the language itself. It's the problem lies with the script. The script that is used to write the English language. Which script do we use to write the English language? The A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, that script. It's not the English script. It's the Latin script. And the Latin script is not, is not native to England. It's, it's, an, it's an external imposition on England. The Latin script emerged in Italy, in Italy, in the pre-Roman times. And it was the uh, script that was used by the Romans during the Roman times. And then out of Rome emerged the Catholic Church, the Vatican, which was an empire. It controlled all of Europe. And what it did was spread Christianity. And you can read the book. There are lots of books about this. One of the best books is The Darkening Age by Catherine Nixie, in which uh, you, you get to see how Europe's indigenous culture was destroyed by Christianity. Destroyed through force. Through a lot of force. A lot of violence. A lot of bloodshed. If you go to Greece, for instance, and you see uh, the great monuments of Greece and the carvings, wonderful carvings and statues, they're all defaced and mutilated and destroyed and broken. Arms are gone. Noses are broken off. Hands are gone. Other limbs are gone. Hammered off. Very similar to what you see in India when you go to temples in northern India. They're all destroyed. And all the murtis of gods and goddesses are mutilated in some way or the other. Nose is broken, face is broken, breasts gone, arms broken. You don't see any intact statue of any god or goddess in any temple or any other place in northern India. It's, it's very, I'm talking about ancient statues and temples. You hardly find a statue of the Buddha in northern India. And I'm talking about including Afghanistan and Pakistan. With the head still on the shoulders. We know how this happened. A very similar thing happened in Europe. With the expansion of Christianity. So if you go to Greece, if you go to the Hellenic, Hellenic regions, you will not see... It, it's, very, it's very rare to find a statue that is intact. Most of them are... You know, they've been dumped in, in lakes. They've been buried underground. They've been broken. They are lying in, in, in ruins. And of late, they've been trying to restore off all of this. But that's what happened. That's how Christianity destroyed Europe's indigenous culture. There were the Northern Crusades, which were extremely bloody. So Christianity spread through the sword. It spread through force. It's, it's a chapter of history that they, the Europeans try to brush under the carpet. Yes. Um, so with the expansion of Christianity, 
came the expansion of the Latin script. And everywhere, see, Europe had its own scripts. Let me give you some examples of, of European scripts uh, that emerged outside of Rome. There were the runic alphabets, for instance, that were used to write the Germanic languages. And there is some speculation here about it may have been an, uh, based on an early version of the Greek alphabet. So the Greeks had their own alphabet. You had the runic alphabet. Uh, take a look at this. The elder Futark, the younger Futark, the Gothenburg runes, Latinized Futark, and, and, and a lot more. There were lots of different forms of the runic alphabets. These were typically used to write the Germanic languages. English is a Germanic language. They were used to write the Scandinavian Teutonic languages, the Scandinavian language, the, the, the Viking language and all those things. Uh, there are lots of rune stones that you find across Europe. So all of these European languages, if they did have a script of their own. It was typically a runic script, and there were other scripts as well. You had other scripts in the in the Aegean region, in Greece, and all that. So you had lots of indigenous scripts that had emerged in Europe. All of these were wiped out. All of these were destroyed, and a single script was imposed over almost the entirety of Europe. That was the Latin script, and this was not a native script to most of the European languages, except for Latin. So then they had to adopt a foreign script to write their language. For the longest time, uh, it was not, the Latin script was the, for the longest time was not used to write the native languages. It was only used to write, uh, you know, Christian theological stuff, the Bible and things like that. So the Bible and and all that was typically only written in Latin for the longest time, and that's a whole different story. But eventually, the Latin script, which was, which was the only script left, was then eventually adapted. To, to write the various European languages, including English. So in French, so I'm familiar with French. So in French, you have these accents, accent aigu, accent grave, you have the sedia and uh, things like that. In German also, they have various uh, diacritical marks that they've imposed, that they've, that they've introduced on the Latin script to make sense of it, to make it more, uh, to adapt it a little bit to the, to, the, to the German language. So then you had these things. Uh, the Russians use the Cyrillic script, which is a native script. So the reason why the English language is so arbitrary, the spellings and pronunciations, is because they, it uses a script that is not native to the language and not native to the region. It's a foreign script that has been force-fitted on the culture and on the language. And that's why it's so hard <laughs> to use it. Imagine the English trying to use the Chinese alphabet to write English. One word, right? Imagine Indians trying to use the Chinese alphabet, the Chinese script to write Hindi or Telugu or Tulu or Kannada or Assamese or Gujarati or Kashmiri or Pashto. Will it work? It simply won't work. It may work to some extent, but it's not going to work fine. It's not going to work perfectly. So that, That's what happened with English. A foreign script was hegemonically superimposed and force-fitted on the English language. And that's why it, it's so weird. And that's why it's so arbitrary. And the pronunciations and spellings and everything is so weird. That's why it's so hard to learn the English language. Right, next question. Oh man, once... <laughs> I get this question at least 10 times a day. Comments, at least 10 comments like this every single day. So, 
I'm sure you are all familiar with this video on, on my channel, the Chinggis Khan video, why Chinggis Khan refused to invade India. Uh, and uh, I get this, this comment at least 10 times a day. I'm just, but it's been a while since I took it. So let's take it. This is by Muhammad Adil. And Muhammad Adil says, it's better to put evidence and reality in the light of history. It all looks like speculation. We all know that Delhi Sultan Aladdin Khilji and what he did to the army of Genghis Khan and his army. So I get this, like I said, I get it all the time. And there are lots of people who say, who who, who insist that I am totally wrong, that uh, Chinggis Khan did not voluntarily go back. It was, he was defeated by Aladdin Khilji and his army. So Aladdin Khilji was the great savior of India. He saved India from Chinggis Khan. That's what people keep on insisting on day after day after day. Okay, let's let's so. Why can't people try and find the information from the, and, and verify their claims, their own claims? Let's go to Google. Yeah, let, let's 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 see for ourselves if there is any truth to uh, what Muhammad Adil is saying. Okay, let's let's first Google simply Genghis Khan. We have to write it as Genghis Khan, not Chinggis Khan. All right, let's see. So Chinggis Khan was born in roughly around 1162 AD. He died on August 25, 1227. What year? 1227. Now, let's go back and uh, search for Allah Ad-Din Khilji. This fella. Whatever his name is. So, Chinggis Khan died in 1227. When was this gentleman born? Aladdin Khilji, the great savior of India, apparently. He was born in 1296. Do you see that Aladdin Khilji was born at least two decades after the death of Chinggis Khan? If that is the case, then how can he possibly, how could he possibly have defeated Chinggis Khan? Please explain to me, dear geniuses. I mean, I just don't understand why people are like this. Why can't you just double check, cross check what you are claiming and what you're believing? It's so easy to do it. It's it's at your fingertips. Pick up the phone and Google it. But you won't do it. The same time that it must have taken Muhammad Adil to write this comment, in the same time he could have checked the evidence for himself, but he will not do it. This, I just, I'm not sure which country is from. I am assuming he's Indian. I, I don't get it why Indians are like this. We insist on believing certain things and even though it's so easy to check the information and data for yourself, you will not do it. I just don't get it, this attitude. we got to change. we got to improve. Whatever your beliefs are, today you are in a position to immediately on demand check, check whether you are right or not, whether your beliefs are correct or not. So why don't you do it? What prevents you from doing it? Do I prevent you from doing it? Does the government of India prevent you from doing it? Does Joe Biden prevent you from doing it? Does George Soros prevent you from doing it? Nobody's preventing you from doing it. So please, I would like to invite everybody, all the viewers, I would like to exhort you all, please utilize technology. Please cross-check whatever you, your beliefs are. Please double-check whether you are right or not. All right. <laughs> Ramalakshmi says, can you talk about Operation 
Popeye and uh, did it really affect the environment? In contrast, what would be the difference between it and creating artificial rain? Operation Popeye. So this is this is something that goes back to the Vietnam War, 1960s, 1970s. Uh, the Vietnam War, well, the roots of the Vietnam War go back to the Second World War and before, but it, it's something that happened in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, so in the Vietnam War, it was about the, the Americans, uh, well, they apparently did something uh, called a false flag operation, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and they used that to precipitate the war, trigger the war, and, and the objective was to defeat communism and bring in democracy and human rights. <laughs> democracy and human rights. So North Vietnam, South Vietnam. So North Vietnam was the 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 the. So it was about fighting the communists and the Americans were worried that the Chinese will expand their footprint in Southeast Asia and take over Vietnam and that's what it was. So it was about American national security half the planet away apparently. So what this operation Popeye was about was it was about it was about creating artificial rainfall. It was a chemical weather modification program. Right? A military cloud seeding project. Now, cloud seeding is a technology that does work. Today, it does work. What you do is you release uh, chemicals into the atmosphere, which act as nucleation points. Those molecules act as nucleation points, the seeds for ra creating raindrops. You typically use sodium iodide or silver iodide. Mostly, it's silver iodide. That's the chemical that's used. And it's, it's possible to produce rainfall almost on demand within a certain time frame by doing this thing. You typically would send a plane aircraft up into the atmosphere at a certain height. You release these droplets, the, 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 this chemical, and soon you will have rainfall. So you typically use silver iodide or sodium iodide. Uh, so this operation, Operation Popeye, was conducted during the Vietnam War. And the Americans did not... And what was the objective of this? The objective of this artificial rain program, this chemical weather warfare program, the objective was to unleash rainfall, was to extend the rainy season in Vietnam in order to have this unseasonal excessive rainfall that will uh, soften the roads, that will wash away bridges and create landslides and things like that, that will be disadvantageous to the uh, Viet Cong, the enemies of the US, the freedom fighters. That was the objective of this program, of Operation Popeye. And the Americans did not do this merely over Vietnam. They did it over Laos, over Cambodia. Let's go to the map. Yes, map, finally. We have to see the map. Where is the map? Where's the map? Where is the map? Here's the map. Here's the map. <laughs> Where is Southeast Asia? Where's Vietnam? Uh, you can orient yourself going eastwards from India, and then we zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in. So this is Indo. They call it Indochina. We used to call it Suvarnabhumi. This entire region, uh, Myanmar, Thailand, and eastwards. So Vietnam is this long geographical region. This country over here, and then you have Cambodia. Then you have Laos, whose capital is Vientiane. 
then you have Thailand. So the Americans did not merely do this cloud seeding uh, activity over Vietnam itself. They did it over Laos, over Cambodia, and even over Thailand. That's what we know they did in Operation Popeye. But the results that they were able to achieve have never been disclosed. So we don't know whether it was successful or not, or, or if it was successful, to what extent it was successful, and whether they were able to achieve their military objectives of uh, creating landslides and softening the roads and washing away river crossings and things like that. We don't know, because they have, as far as I know, they've never disclosed it. You know, I've actually looked into this. I have not been able to find any evidence of, of what the results were. So that's what Operation Popeye was. Uh, they did this during the Vietnam War, 60s and 70s. When did it start? When did it, did it begin? Uh, end? We're not quite sure. Uh, but that's what it was. But yeah, this technology of creating artificial rain through cloud seeding using silver iodide or sodium iodide does work. It is something that is indeed used by certain nations for certain purposes, for essentially creating ra artificial rainfall. Subhmay Patra says, Hinduism is the only culture which wholeheartedly accepts and respects LGBTQ plus people. I have many LGBTQ friends who respect and love their Hindu roots, but there are many LGBTQ who are completely left-leaned, support radical organizations which ridicule the Hindu culture. What's the reason for this? It is the indoctrination created by education, the education system and the media. Typically, it's it's this indoctrination is, is placed into people's heads. Uh, it starts in a soft way during the primary school level. It becomes a little more, uh, it intensifies a little more during your secondary school that uh, up to the 10th and 12th standards. And then when it, when, it, when it comes to college and university education, that's where the hardcore indoctrination is done. Everybody goes through this. And most Indians, because of this, see, first of all, they don't teach Indian culture at all. You, you're not taught anything about your culture in the Indian education system. And then... Once you go to a higher level, you are taught everything, things that are totally against your Indian culture, all lies and fabrications. So that's what happens. So despite Hinduism or, or Dharma or Indian culture, Dharmic culture being the only culture that has never ever done anything against the LGBTQ people, whatever that is, Despite that, lots there are lots of gay LGBT people who think Hinduism is is the epitome of evil and all that. And despite being of Indian origin, of Hindu origin, so it's all because of the indoctrination and the brainwashing done by the Indian education system, the media, the entertainment industry, and so on. Your professors, your textbooks, mainly your professors at the uh, uh, at the college and university level, especially if you are in the humanities. Good God, you're totally brainwashed. It's I've I've known people really intelligent people, good people, you know, good human beings who went into the humanities and come out totally brainwashed. And they're still nice people, good people, but they genuinely believe Hinduism is evil in Indian culture is believe. It's wrong. It's bad. Evil. Intelligent people, well-meaning people, good people who feel this way, who believe, who believe very strongly that Hinduism is evil. And not only that, they believe the Indian nation is evil. There are people who will <laughs> support China's claim on Tibet and Pakistan's claim on Kashmir but they will not support India's claim on anything despite being Indian and they truly believe it is right so that's what the education system does to you so th that's the reason why it is so despite, I mean, find me anything in the Hindu scriptures uh, there are millions of pages of Hindu scriptures 
the Vedas, the Upanishads, and so much more, the, the Smritis, the Shrutis, so much more, right? Find me anything which says, which which uh, goes against, uh, which which discriminates based on sexuality. You won't find anything. Yeah, and still these people are anti-Hindu, so it's not their fault. Please don't hate them for whatever they believe. Uh, obviously, it would be good if they could disabuse themselves of these fake notions. But yeah, that's that's what it is. So it is in the education system and our wonderful professors and teachers are to blame for this. I'm not saying all professors are bad. I'm not saying all, te all teachers are bad. Some of them themselves have been brain. Most of them themselves have been brainwashed. And they, they also believe it. And they think they are right. And they, they think they're doing a good thing. So that's what it is. It's a system that is self-perpetuating. And obviously, they, 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 at certain very high levels, there are certain very agenda-driven individuals in the academic system, especially in the humanities. So yeah, that's what it is. That's that's the reason why it is so. That's the reason why we see this phenomenon so very often. Rinnigan says, a US company will invest $500 million in Manipur. Is there an agenda behind such huge pumping in of money into Manipur? Interesting question. Do we have a news report which uh, corroborates this? Yes, right. Come on, let's go there. Let's put that on the screen. So this is from the Indian Express and this uh, news report is from February 18. That's a week ago, roughly. Uh U.S. company to invest uh, uh, $500 million U.S. dollars in Manipur's tourism, according to Chief Minister Mr. Biren Singh, uh, citing the willingness of several other foreign investors from Argentina, Peru, and Bangladesh to invest in the state. Uh, the Chief Minister said Manipur will witness development in all sectors. So recently there was the G20 meet. There was a G20 meeting, the B20, a B20 meeting in Manipur in 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 Moirang. It was most likely in Moirang, close to Imphal, near the Loktak Lake, where this uh, event happened. It happened on what date? 17th and 18th of February, somewhere around that time. And all these foreign delegates came to India, and there were people from the US and various other nations. Uh, yeah, Moirang, there you go. The B20 meeting, yes. So these certain nations have said that they are willing to invest uh, in Manipur's uh, tourism sector and various other sectors. So this is a US company which wants to invest apparently $500 million. So uh, is there any kind of agenda? Well, first of all, when you invest money in, in a nation, in a state, it's a business move. Your agenda is to make money. I'm going to invest X amount of money and I will. I'm hoping to profit Y amount of money. So first of all, you invest money, you... Uh, Maybe you invest in the hotel sector or 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 the adventure tourism sector or what whatever sector which is going to which is linked to tourism. You invest the money, you create some infrastructure, or you whatever you do, and then over time, after a certain amount of time, you hope that you will make the money back, and then you start gaining making profits. So the first agenda is that you want to make money. But obviously, when the US is involved, one has to be careful because there can always be other agendas. Uh, so as far as I see, I I don't even know which company it is. I've not been able to find the name of the company uh, in, in the news reports thus far. So unless we know what company it is and what their background is and what their links are, you can't really tell. But there's always the possibility that when there is foreign investment in your country, especially in a sensitive area like the Northeast, like the Far East of India, which is a border region and where which has 
seen problems in the past, one has to be really careful as to whom you allow to invest in this place. Obviously, it's good. Half a billion dollars is a lot of money. And it's going to significantly boost Manipur's tourism sector and economy if this is true. But the, the question is, at what price are we doing it? So what... Uh, kind of company is it? What kind of people run the company, are in, involved with the company? What kind of links does it have to other people, other companies and other people? What are the sources of funding? Who are the, the main people? What are their antecedents? What's their background? All this due diligence will have to be done by the government of India. It has to be done. Because it's always possible that there is some agenda apart from making money. Yeah. So, for instance, there are there you will in the northeast you will find various organizations that are linked to the Christian evangelical sector who say that we are building hospitals and schools, but they have a different agenda as well. So one has to be careful about this. That's how the northeast has been totally, you know, what's happened there. Krishna says we all know the situation of Pakistan. Very soon they'll go out of money. Well, I'm not sure about that, but yeah, it's it's in dire straits. It's been in dire straits for a while. Uh, so in the desperation for getting money, will they sell their nukes? Mm. Not the, the complete bomb, but in parts. We know there are nations like Saudi Arabia and Iran in the region that aspire to be nuclear powers. If this happens, how will it impact India? And how can and can this be stopped from happening? So, uh, yeah, Pakistan's economy is in dire straits. They, they're on, always on the verge of defaulting. They're always on the verge of, of verge, always on the verge of bankruptcy. But they keep, keep on being bailed out by their beneficiaries. In the past, it used to be China. Nowadays, you would have the US. And obviously, the bailout will be done at the cost of something or the other. So there's always a pound of flesh to be extracted when you bail somebody out. That's how it works in geopolitics, especially with Western nations. And now... I'm I'm hearing this uh, the the this chatter on social media these days that maybe Pakistan uh, should sell a few nukes, maybe to Turkey, maybe to Saudi Arabia, maybe to Iran, and make some money. So um, <laughs> there's this guy who wears a red cap or something who has been saying this that uh, Pakistan should openly no not don't do it clandestinely, do it openly. This is our technology. We have developed it, developed it apparently. And now we have Pakistan may have 150 nukes. Let's sell five nukes or 10 nukes. A few maybe to Turkey, a few maybe to Saudi Arabia, a few maybe to Iran. And let's make money in this manner. Well, <laughs> first of all, we have to understand that the Pakistani nuclear program uh, was aided and abetted by the West and by China. So certain designs of centrifuges, etc., were were stolen, 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 like they say, by Abdul Qadir Khan from the Netherlands or somewhere from wherever it was. He was allowed to take it. Okay, the West allowed the Pakistanis to do this, and then some help came from China. Maybe uh, uh, the Chinese transferred North Korean technology to to Pakistan or whatever. So Pakistan has been helped by the West, which means the US, and by China in creating its nuclear program. And the objective, obviously, is to counterbalance India, is to keep India off balance, is to keep India a checkmated, so to say, nuclear checkmate. So when the West has such a large stake in this, why will they allow Pakistan to do this? Even if, let's say, Pakistan wants to do something which is apparently in Pakistan's national interest. Will the West allow this to happen? Imran Khan, as Prime Minister, wanted to make Pakistan more independent of the West. He wanted Pakistan to have more, more self-reliance, to be 
a self-respecting nation, see what happened to him. There's always the possibility of a coup in Pakistan. So the West does not want Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. The West does not want any other nation to acquire nuclear weapons, neither Turkey nor Saudi Arabia. So first of all, if the, if the US doesn't want something to happen, it's very hard for Pakistan to do that. And even if they go ahead and do such a thing, I mean, it will be a problem even for Saudi Arabia to acquire a nuke from or a bunch of nukes from 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 Pakistan. The Americans won't allow this. But Saudi Arabia is to a large extent controlled by the U.S. Uh, Turkey is a different story. But once again, the Americans see what happens in Pakistan is actually well known to the U.S. There are no secrets in Pakistan. The Americans have their intelligence assets deeply embedded in the Pakistan military, in the Pakistan civilian sector, in the Pakistan nuclear sector, in the Pakistan Pakistani intelligence sector, bureaucracy, government, everywhere. So it's not like the Pakistanis can quietly do something. The Americans will know everything and they won't allow this to happen. When it comes to India, do we want a new nuclear power in the neighborhood? Do we want a nuclear Iran? Iran has imperial ambitions of its own. Do we want a new nuclear power? apart from Pakistan. We don't want that. It doesn't benefit India. It doesn't benefit anybody to have more nuclear powers in our neighborhood. So, so will they sell their nukes? I think they may think of selling the nukes, but I don't think any of the Americans or anybody else will allow them to do it. Uh, It's nice to talk about it and and pretend to be a great geopolitical expert, but it's, it's extremely impractical, if not unfeasible completely. Vaibhav says, DRDO chief said that the advanced medium combat aircraft, the AMCA, will take its first flight in 2030 and the induction will begin in 2033. Don't you think it's too late? We should consider Russia's offer of SU-75, SU-57 or order a huge number of Tejas Mark 1A to fulfill decreasing squadrons? Question mark. Yes, the AMCA will most like most likely the first prototype will first fly in 2030 and the induction will start in 2033. That's the timeline that we have. That's the timeline that's been given to the government. That's what's been communicated to the public. Do I think it's too late? I don't think it's too late. When it comes to the development of any aircraft, it typically takes a decade or two. Look at the development timeline of the F-35, the American F-35 or the F-22. Look at the development time of the Rafale that we are now using. All these are extraordinarily complicated, complex machines. It's not like in the Second World War, we had the Spitfires that you could knock out, you know, 20 a week or whatever, you know. It's not like that. Mustangs, P-51, what is it? P-6151, Mustangs, Spitfires, Focke, Wolfe, Messer, Schmitz, Henkels, uh, Rush, uh, Japanese Zeros. Those were low-tech aircraft compared to what we have today. Today's fighter planes are extraordinarily complicated. Many of these fighter planes are aerodynamically unstable. But you make them unstable to give them more maneuverability. But then you have to control the flight through computers. And you need a huge amount of computing power and extremely sophisticated software to do that because your plane is aerodynamically unstable. So the more maneuverable you want your fighter plane to be, the more well, you have to introduce some kind of aerodynamic instability in the fighter plane, which means you can't, it, it can't fly itself. It, has, it, it needs a computer to fly it uh, with the avionics rules and all those things. So 
it and and the the AMCA is going to be a fifth generation fighter plane with significant stealth features and other characteristics and india is essentially developing all these technologies on its own because nobody is going to sell this technology to india so it's going to take time 2030 i think it's an op- kind of an optimistic time frame just 7 8 years from now but i hope it works out in the time uh india obviously has learned a lot of lessons from the tejas development program the lca tejas development program uh, the the mark 1a is coming out the mark 2 will come out in a few years we also have the twin engine deck based fighter that's going to come out in a few years and the amca so i think it's a realistic time frame if not a slightly optimistic time frame uh i don't think it's too late it typically takes that much time to develop a fighter plane so then what india should do is we need to find stop gap solutions for the next 10 or so years 15 years because it's going to be by 2035 that india will have a significant uh, number of these fighter planes indigenous fighter fighter planes inducted hopefully so for the next 10 15 years we need to find stop gap solutions one possibility is that you buy more rafals the other possibility is that you co develop the sukhoi 57 uh, no it's already co it's already developed so maybe you could manufacture that in india tell the russians that yeah we want to manufacture at least 100 of these so then they will move the manufacturing facility to india it will generate jobs and we will also hopefully gain gain some technology transfer to the to the through that or maybe we co-developed the sukhoi 75 with the russians now we tried to develop the uh, the fifth generation fighter aircraft with the russians co-develop it we gave them a bunch of uh, a certain amount of money but they were not willing to transfer the technology so that money was sunk it was lost in india withdrew from the from the program that uh, and that that program was based on the sukhoi 57 so we know what the russians can do they are not always going to play ball uh, they will try their best to not transfer the technology obviously that's how it goes so you know one has to be careful with these things so one could co develop the 75 sukhoi 75 which has which is a certain kind of fighter plane with the russians maybe it will fill in one of the gaps in our requirements maybe we could buy some sukhoi 57s i think that the rafal is a far better alternative it's kind of expensive but yeah well good technology costs money it's a very capable fighter plane so one could go for the rafal one could buy the f16 the americans want us to buy f16s or the f15a uh, hornet or the sukhoi or the or the 57 sukhoi 57 75 we have a bunch of options or we could order a huge number of tejas mark 1a fighter planes uh all these possibilities exist clearly we need a stop gap solution for the next 10 15 years uh, maybe maybe 100 fighter planes of some kind the best possible fighter plane we can afford uh, so that's for the government to decide uh, so i don't think the amca development timeline is very late it's, i don't think it's too late it it takes time to develop a really world class fighter plane and the amca is going to be one of the best fighter planes in the world that's the objective so that's not going to be easy to do it's going to take time so the time frame is fine so we need to find a stop gap solution in the meanwhile the easiest thing to do is to buy maybe you know a total of approximately 100 rafals that's the easiest thing to do because we already operate the rafal and we don't want to have a big mix of different kinds of fighter planes because that becomes a logistical nightmare so maybe the rafal makes sense unless the russians give us a good technology transfer deal in which case we could look into that as well so these are the options that we have and the government and the military should need to get together which i'm sure they're doing 
and they need to find the best way forward and that to don't take too long to decide typically these things take decades to decide which is incredibly slow and that's bad for india's national security varun joshi says could you please sh- uh, share light on the tartus port and its significance israel bombed damascus syria last week after the tragic earthquake killing 19 people why does israel keep attacking syria during such a humanitarian crisis okay let's talk about the tartus port uh, one question at a time uh, well, let's talk about tartus so this port uh, to understand we that we obviously have to go to the map because the map is our best friend this port tartus or whatever the pronunciation is is in syria where is syria it's on the eastern mediterranean coast how do we locate it we go westwards from india we cross iran and the saudi and the arabian peninsula and then we come to the mediterranean coast the eastern coast of the mediterranean sea and you have syria over here right so syria is a largest nation the large cities are obviously damascus damashk in the south you have homs somewhere here Homs in the west, Aleppo in the north, and then you have a couple of ports on the Mediterranean coast. One is Latakia, one is Tartus. So, what's the significance of the Tartus port? Let's zoom in. This is the only Russian-operated port in the Mediterranean Sea, and it's most likely one of the few uh, military bases that Russia has outside of its. Uh, the geopolitical region of influence so let's uh, go into this thing let's open the satellite imagery so this is a port that mm, sometimes the russians would uh, berth some warships over here but it's typically used for refueling their warships tartus so uh, why is it important so first of all it's the only one of the only military bases that russians have outside of their zone of influence the russians have this massive black sea fleet in the black sea region where the ukraine war is happening the crimean peninsula belongs to russia now they are in control of it and when the russians want to send warships into the mediterranean sea they have to do it through the turkish choke points the tr- the straits the strait of bosphorus that passes through istanbul then you have to go through the sea of marmara and then you have to come through the strait of the dardanelles So once you are out of the strait of the Dardanelles you have to navigate the Aegean Sea and then come into the Mediterranean Sea. And obviously you will have to refuel and supply your ships somewhere. So that's what the port of Tartus is all about. It's uh, a place where the Russian warships can be refueled and refitted, resupplied, all those things can be done over here. So that is the significance of the Tartus port. It's a Russian naval base and i'm not sure we can see any naval ships over here yes this seems to be a naval ship possibly uh yeah but that's what it is about tartus port and it's not the only military facility russia has over here so if we go north of tartus we come to latakia where is latakia here's latakia well latakia is not exactly operated by russia but there is an interesting uh, russian presence near latakia it is over here khmemim or whatever it's called khmemim and as you can see there is this air strip over here there's an airport over here it's called the basal al assad international airport but it's actually a russian air force base right that's what it is it's at khmemim south of latakia 
Now let's zoom a little bit into it and see what 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 we can discern from the satellite imagery. So clearly, immediately we see these aircraft over here. These are very clearly Russian aircraft. Uh, shall I zoom in further? This is an AWACS system, airborne control and warning system, and there are other places as well. These are heavy lift uh, aircraft of Russian make very clearly. Yeah, so we can see the Russian presence over here. Let's see what else we can see over here, find over here. <coughs> Excuse me. I can see some helicopters. So these obviously are most likely also Russian helicopters. They look like alligators. Most likely Russian alligator helicopters. This is a different make, but yes, these are Russian helicopters. What else do we see? What else do we see? Aha, look at this. These, what is, what kind of aircraft is this? It's most likely a MiG or a Sukhoi of some kind. So once again, these are Russian fighter planes. These are all Russian military assets. So that's the Russian presence in Syria. The Russian presence in Syria obviously was required to save Syria from the American attempt to change the regime of of, of, uh, of Mr. Al-Assad. And uh, the, the Russians were able to successfully save the Syrian government. And that's why they have this military presence in, in Syria. And the Tartus port, the Russian presence in the Tartus port dates back to the USSR days, to the 20th century. So it's not something that's happened recently. It's It's been there for the longest time. All right. Okay, what's the next question? WBCS says, do you think to protect dharma, we should start eating beef and taking testosterone injections. Should we not try to make our men battle ready? More milk, more physical culture, and so on. What's the utility of weak IITNs and doctors? We are losing ground because of not lack of faith, but lack of strength and aggression. Um, you know... <laughs> I would I would agree that everybody needs to be physically fit and active and strong. That's why I keep saying everybody needs to take care of their health, lift weights, eat good food, eat a healthy diet. I'm not sure anybody needs testosterone injections. It's true that uh, the testosterone levels of men are 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 falling worldwide. It's a global phenomenon, but. Uh, so, so the question is, how do you increase your testosterone and be more manly or whatever? Yeah, what testosterone does is, is it gives you the masculine uh, characteristics, more muscle mass compared to females, uh, the characteristic face of the shape, which is more square compared to that of females, and more muscle mass, uh, more bone density, higher strength, the deep voice that men have, all those characteristics, and more aggression. The higher your testosterone, the more aggressive you're gonna be. So. Uh, you don't need testosterone injections to do that. The, the easiest way to increase your testosterone is to indulge in heavy physical activity, lifting weights. And the best weightlifting exercise for increasing your testosterone is legs. That's squats. You take a barbell, you put it on your shoulders, and you go down and you come up. That's called a squat. The squat is, is the best testosterone boosting exercise. It's, it's, it's a very difficult exercise, especially if you have a heavy weight. That's why leg day is the is the hardest day, right? But yeah, so you don't need to take testosterone injections for that. Now, when it comes to eating beef, it's the one thing that's taboo in Hinduism. So why why would you do that? 
I understand what you what you're trying to say. Indians need to eat more protein and all that. So you don't need to eat beef for acquiring protein. You could eat chicken. You could eat fish. You could you can even acquire the gain the same amount of protein from vegetarian sources like pulses and all that. So it's not required. It's not needed to eat beef to be more masculine. Now think about it like this. Some of the fiercest warriors in human history were the Japanese samurai, right? We know that. Some of the best warriors of all time, the samurai. Do you know the samurai were vegetarian? The samurai were vegetarian. And if you don't trust me, then let me offer you evidence. Here we are. Why eating meat was banned in Japan for centuries. So you can look at this article. For centuries, the Japanese people considered eating beef especially taboo. Now, they're not Hindus, right? Apparently. So why was eating beef a taboo in Japan? So that's a whole historical thing. It's what I keep saying all the time. Hinduism and Buddhism are the same thing. This, uh, Contrary to what 99% of Indians believe. Um, so, uh, so eating meat was taboo, especially beef. It was taboo in Japan. Uh, what did the samurai really eat in a day? So, samurai, the history of the samurai. Uh, predictably, samurai ate a lot of rice and all that. Pickled herbs, vegetables, fermented paste, miso, all those things. Vegetables, leafy vegetables, root crops, and so on and so on. But where's the beef? Yeah, the beef is missing from the samurai diet. They did not eat a lot of meat. The only meat they would eat, if at all, would be fish or seafood. So Buddhism and Shinto, both practiced in ancient Japan, considered both of these religions considered meat unclean and encouraged followers to eat vegetables or fish, but not meat. So that's what that's a that's a deal. The samurai. The vegetarianism was something that the samurai had in common with ninjas. So even the ninjas were vegetarians, right? So the great warriors, some of the greatest warriors in the world, the samurai, were vegetarian. Ninjas, the greatest assassins in the world, were vegetarians. So you don't need to protect dharma. To, you don't need to eat beef to protect dharma and take testosterone injections. The great samurais, the great, some of the greatest warriors were vegetarians. Nobody has accused them of being not manly enough or not being martial enough or not being strong enough, right? Even the, 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 the Roman gladiators were mainly vegetarians. And those were trained, their only purpose was to fight. So this myth that people have, many people have, I mean, we need to re-examine that. It is not based in, in, in facts. And yeah, the easiest way to, to to consume sufficient protein is to eat meat. I mean, you could also eat uh, milk products, yes. You could eat paneer or, or cheese. But the easiest, simplest way is to eat meat. So you don't have to eat beef for that. You could eat chicken. You could eat fish. You could eat uh, other meat products. So I agree that... Uh, it is good to uh, be physically active, physically strong. I, that's what I keep recommending to men as well as to women, boys as well as, well as well as girls. You need to be physically active. You need to be physically strong. Even girls need to have this. Go to the gym, lift weights. Yes. Um, 
that's what I want to say. But the other thing is that what's the utility of weak IITs and doctors? Listen, in a society, you, you need all kinds of people. You need you have division of labor in any any functioning society. You need intellectuals. You need doctors. You need engineers. You need scientists. You need artists. You need merchants. You need warriors. Not not everybody does these things. Everyone's different. Everybody needs to find what they are the they have the most aptitude for and go for that. And there are people who who obviously have the aptitude for physical activity and, and warfare and all that. Well, those people should do whatever is right to be physically strong and fit. And that's how it is. Yeah. So I disagree that there is no utility of weak IITNs and doctors. I agree that in Indian society, there is this uh, kind of shift uh, away from physical culture. If you watch Indian entertainment, all the men you see are kind of effeminate. If you watch Indian advertisements, especially those aimed at teenagers, the boys they show in those ads are very not not quite manly, even though you have physically stronger and more manly boys around. But the the ads only show certain kinds kinds of men or boys. So yeah, there, there is this, and 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 that's something that's seeping into the consciousness of of youngsters. So it's it's cool to be you know less manly these days. That's that's something that's seeping in from the West. We know how the socio-political climate is in the U.S. and in the West, right? So I think uh, every person needs to take care of their health. I think every I think weight training will benefit everybody. Heavy weights, not little weights, yeah, no, no, not those little pink dumbbells, but real iron weights. You need to test yourself. You need to try and go beyond the limits, not injure yourself, obviously. So I think everybody needs to do that. But I think there's a great amount of utility when it comes to IITNs and doctors and scientists and engineers and intellectuals and writers and artists, as well as merchants and entrepreneurs and warriors. A good society, a healthy society needs all these people. Lanchan buses are Maithe's pre-Vedic Hindus with their own version of the scriptures called Puyas. Puyas. Atinga is Brahman, Shidaba is Shiva, Sanamahi is Kartik, Pakhangba is Ganesh. The Vedic age seems to be only 3,500 years old. The Kangla Shah, the beasts are supposed to have only one horn. It's the same as the Chinese dragon lion. Okay, the, first of all, the Vedic age is not three and a half thousand years old. That's what uh, Romila Thapar w- would like you to believe. That's what Irfan Habib would like you to believe. That's what your education system is has been drilling into your heads. The Vedic system is way older than that. The Vedic age. It is tied to the uh, to the disappearance of the Saraswati River. So I'll, I'll, I'll not go into the reason why the Vedic age and the Rig Veda is way older than what these people claim. It's It, it dates back to at least five, six thousand years before today, if not much more. At least. We don't know quite exactly how old it is. But it's way before that. The Rig Veda is the oldest known literature in, in the entire history of humanity. So the Vedic age is not three and a half thousand years old. Now, the question about the Maitis. The Maitis are the people of Manipur. Where is Manipur? I hope you all know. In, in case you don't, let me... Uh, let me uh, go to the map as always. Where's the map? Where's the map? Where's the map? So, where is Manipur? Let's find Manipur. Manipur is in the far east of India, which people colloquially call the northeast. 
south of Nagaland, north of Mizoram, west of Myanmar. This is Manipur. It used to be a kingdom. It is now a state. And the geographical extent of Manipur was larger than this in the past. Uh, India gave away the Kabo Valley of Manipur to Burma uh, under the great Shri Jawaharlal Nehruji, the great man himself. Uh, now, so the, and the Mete people are the people of Manipur, the Hindus. The, 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 the Hindus or the Sanamahi people, Sanamahism following people of, of Manipur. Those people are called the Metis. And uh, so if you look at the history of Manipur, it dates back at least 2,000 years, if not 3,500 years. Uh, there is the, the Royal Chronicle of Manipur, which is the record of the kings of Manipur and the dynasty of, of the royal dynasty of Manipur. Uh, one version is it dates back to around 2000 years before today, and there's another version, more extended version, that dates back to three and a half thousand years before today. Now, if you look at the Chinese history, it is about 3000 years old. If you want to be charitable to China, it's three and a half thousand years old. I'm talking about the actual civilizational history of China. Uh, if you look at the Stone Age and all, it goes back thousands of years, but we talk about the civilizational history of China. So Chinese civilization is three or three and a half thousand years old. And Manipur itself, its history is about three and a half thousand years. Uh, so, um, right. So, uh, so Manipur is <laughs> most likely older. Manipuri culture seems to be actually older than, than Chinese culture itself. Now, the, the origins of the people of Manipur is they, they're not quite clear yet because our historians, our scientists, uh, historians have not been doing their job. I mean, what are the great historians of the University of Imphal doing? I'm not sure what they're doing, but they are not they are unable to answer the question. So, what is the origin of the Manipuri language? Where did it actually originate from? We're not quite sure. That's fine. The question is, uh, so the Manipuri scriptures are called the Puyas. Uh, and the Puyas are very similar in some ways to the Vedas. Uh, the cosmology is very interesting. Uh, there is, well, you know, the cyclical theory of the universe, just like what we have in the Vedas. Uh, I was speaking to a Manipuri friend recently, and he was saying that there are apparently seven big bangs or seven cycles thus far. Uh, according to the Manipuri Puyas, you know, the Mete Puyas. That's interesting. And it's obviously a polytheistic system. So you have uh, Pakhangba, you have uh, Shidaba, you have Shidabi, you have Sanamahi, and, and so on and so forth. So that's in some ways very similar to the Vedic pantheon of gods. I think every polytheistic system is in some way or the other very similar. Uh, so I'm not sure if you could actually equate Shidaba with Shiva and Sanamahi with Kartik and Pakangba with Ganesh, but the similarities are unmistakable. I think uh, all polytheistic cultures are very similar. You typically have a belief in the divinity of everything. Uh, it's called uh, it's called panpsychism or cosmopsychism that the entire universe is conscious. Every object has some consciousness. Every object has some divinity in it. Plants, trees, animals, mountains, humans, we have all, we all have some aspect of divinity in us. Uh, the belief in reincarnation, the worship of spirits, of ancestors, of, of the spirits of forests and trees, and obviously a certain pantheon of gods. You see this in Hinduism, in the Vedic, Vedic religion. You see it in Sanamahism. It's called Sanamahism. You see it in the old Indo-European religion. You see it in what's called Tengrism, you see it in Shinto, you see it everywhere. 
Yeah. So that's why it is. It looks so similar. I'm not sure that the Manipuri Sanamahi culture originated in Vedic in, in Vedic culture. Most likely, it did not. Most likely, it did not. Right. Uh, the Kanglasha is the great, uh, the the mythical beast that guards the Kangla fort. Let's put that on the screen. Kanglasha. So let's let's put that on the screen. So it seems to be a unicorn kind of creature. It has. Uh, no, I'm not sure if it's a unicorn. Take a look at this. This is uh, the statue outside of the Kangla fort. It has two horns and two branching horns, just like the antlers of a deer. Yeah, so that's a deal. So that's what I can say about this. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the same as the Chinese dragon lion. The What's the name of the beast? I forget. Right. So yeah, that, that's what it is. Is Kangla's civilization older than the Chinese civilization? Which means the Manipuri civilization. Sanamahism is a more advanced theology of creation of the universe than the <laughs> Chinese culture. Yeah, like I was just saying, the 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 if you look at the texts, the Puyas, then there seems to be that there is something very similar to the Big Bang cosmology, and what it's something you find in the Vedic cosmology as well, the cyclical rebirth of the universe. So yes, most likely Manipuri civilization, Meite civilization is most likely older than the Chinese civilization and, and its theology and theory of creation of the universe is most likely more sophisticated than the Chinese theory, the Chinese culture. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's take some more questions. Uh, Son Darang says, can you tell us about why there will be an earthquake in Northeast India as I'm from Arunachal Pradesh? A scientist has predicted, predicted that there will be an earthquake in the Northeast. The same scientist who predicted an earthquake in Turkey. Mild earthquakes happen in my state here and there every two, three months and nobody cares. It's a routine thing. Yes. Uh, hope we get no, enough ideas and knowledge to prevent people from dying in the future. Look, there is no scientific way of predicting, earth, predicting earthquakes as of today, as far as I know. People do make claims of having predict, predicted something. I mean, I can make a prediction that there's going to be a big earthquake in the, in the Himalayas. And I will refrain from giving a time frame. So it could happen in the next 5 years, next 10 years, or next 50 years. It's going to happen. We know the Himalayas are an extremely seismically active zone. A big earthquake is inevitably going to happen sometime in the future. So let's say I make the prediction. There's going to be a big earthquake in the Himalayas again. Well, that's no prediction unless you give a proper time frame or a time scale to it. So somebody, if somebody predicts there's going to be an earthquake in Turkey, it's not necessarily a scientific prediction, even though that person may be a scientist. Because there is no way, as of today, of accurately predicting earthquakes. The earth, How does an earthquake occur? How does it happen? What's the mechanism? It's underground tectonic activity. The movements of the tectonic plates under the surface of the earth. And these movements happen because of the internal convection movement of the magma layer within the earth, in deep in the interior of the earth. And sometimes the magma comes up to the surface of the earth in the form of volcanoes, that's lava. And that's why you have the, the, the ring of fire which a ring of volcanoes and, and where you have lots of earthquakes, Indonesia, Japan, all that, right? All the way up to the Andamans. So 
because we don't know what's happening deep under the Earth's surface, that's why we are not in a position to make any accurate predictions of earthquakes. So I am sure the media must have reported this or that, that so-and-so person made a prediction. The, me the media people are not scientists and they, they look for sensationalism. So one must not be believe everything that appears in the media. Actually, 95% of what appears in the media has to be cross-checked very thoroughly because it could be highly inaccurate. So... Um, Will there be earthquakes in the future in the Northeast? Yes. You have earthquakes from time to time. Like, like uh, Sondarang is saying, uh, every two, three months, there's a small earthquake here and there in, in, in Arunachal Pradesh. And there are earthquakes throughout the far east of India, the northeast of India, Manipur, Nagaland, even Myanmar, and obviously in the Andaman Islands. So why do earthquakes happen? It's They happen because of tectonic activity. The Indian plate, 100 million years ago, the Indian subcontinent was attached to Africa about 120 million years ago. Then because of tectonic activity, it, it sped across the Indian Ocean and slammed into Eurasia. And this action of in the Indian subcontinent slamming into Eurasia created the Himalayas. And the Himalayas are still rising. The Indian play, subcontinent is still slamming into Eurasia. It's a slow motion collision but an extremely energetic collision. And these enormous forces, they push these mountains upwards. And that tells you that the Himalayan region is highly unstable. And that's why you have earthquakes there. Every few years or decades, you have a major earthquake in this area. And the far east of India, northeast of India, Arunachal Pradesh, Nagaland, uh, Manipur, etc. That's in the foothills of the Himalayas. You have hills. It's a very hilly place. So because it's part of the extended Himalayan zone, that's why you have earthquakes there. So that's why there are earthquakes on a fairly routine basis in Arunachal Pradesh, in Nagaland, Manipur, etc. And that's why in the future also this will continue to happen for the foreseeable future. When you talk about geological time scales, you're talking about tens of millions of years. So it's going to be a feature of this region. Just like in Japan, you know Earthquakes happen. It's just a way of life. It's a fact of life. Similarly, in the northeast of India, it's going to happen, but hopefully not to that extent. Not very major earthquakes. Swapnil says, what makes tardigrades the toughest animal species on Earth? Physically, chemically, biologically, uh, that can withstand just about any natural calamity or extreme environment. Interesting question. What is a tardigrade? Let's Google it. Let us Google it so that I can show you the image of what a tardigrade, tardigrade looks like. Here is Google. Tardigrade. That is a spelling. It's an animal. It's about half a millimeter in size. It's also called a water bear, colloquially. That's what it looks like. Let us uh, go to images. That's what it looks like. A tardigrade. That's what it is. So it kind of looks like a bear, yes. It has this bear-like face as well and bear, polar bear-like like, like body as well. They are called water bears colloquially. So these are microscopic creatures about half a millimeter in, in length, uh, very small. And they are found all across the earth in virtually every habitat in the earth. They are found in the sea. They are they're found on the top of hills and mountains, they're found in deserts, they're found everywhere, they're found all around us. Uh, why are they so hardy? Why are they so tough? So they have certain uh, 
adaptations that give them this toughness. So these beasts, these little beasts can survive extreme pressure. You go to the deep sea trenches, the Mariana Trench or the deep sea trenches where the ocean is several kilometers deep, which is going to be a place where you have extremely high pressure. Tardigrades can survive that. They can also survive extreme temperatures. The temperature on the moon, the highest temperature during daytime is about 130 degrees Celsius. And the low temperature on moon is about minus 150 Celsius. So tardigrades can tardigrades can survive that temperature easily. They can survive temperatures below two, minus 200 degrees. And that they can survive temperatures above 151 degrees Celsius, higher than the boiling point of water. They can survive that easily. Yeah, they can also survive extreme dehydration. Uh, they they uh, they go into a state of of uh, hibernation. They go into a state of extreme dehydration, uh, in which their metabolism comes to a complete halt, and they can survive for decades in this kind of dehydrated states. So they are not physically active. Their metabolism is completely stopped, but they survive in this state of suspended animation, dehydration. And in this condition, they can even survive exposure to the vacuum of space. So they can survive on the moon, they can survive on the exterior of spacecrafts and all that. And they are even able to repair their DNA. They have this incredible ability to repair their DNA. If you send somebody to space, even if you are shielded and within a spacecraft, you're going to be exposed to cosmic rays, cosmic radiation, which can damage and degrade your DNA, which can create uh, mutations and cancers and all that. Well, tardigrades are able to repair the DNA somehow. So this protects them from the damage caused by radiation in outer space. So they have certain proteins that protect their DNA from the damage caused by radiation, X-rays and cosmic rays and all those things. And uh, they also have a certain protein which protects them, which, which enables them to survive without oxygen. So they're able to survive in space. They are able to withstand radiation, X-rays, cosmic rays. They're able to withstand uh, extreme temperatures, extreme pressures. They, they, they can survive without oxygen. And they can, uh, you know, they can survive in extreme environments. So it's because of these, they can even survive exposure to toxic chemicals and acids and alkaline environments. They also have a very tough exterior pro uh, coating a thick shell, so to say, which helps them uh, survive these things. So because of all these adaptations, genetic adaptations, evolutionary adaptations, that's what makes the tardigrade so incredibly tough and hardy. It can survive just about anything. Uh, recently, this there was an Israeli spacecraft that crashed on the moon. It was carrying tardigrades for research purposes. So those tardigrades are now on the moon's surface. And I assure you, they're alive. Yeah. So that's the kind of incredible beast, little tiny little beast it is, just half a millimeter in length. And yeah, it's possibly the toughest creature on that we know of on planet Earth. Tejas says, can our solar system have more undiscovered planets than what we know currently? If yes, why are they not discovered yet? Yes, the solar system most likely has undiscovered planet. There already seems to be there's a big search going on right now for planet 9 or planet X or whatever you want to call it. So if you look at the orbits of various uh, objects in the solar system, there seems to be a disturbance in the force, so to say, uh, beyond the orbit of Pluto. So there, there is most likely a hidden planet somewhere out there, far away from the orbit of Pluto, Pluto further beyond the orbit of Pluto. 
but it's not detectable thus far. Astronomers all around the world are looking for it. Um, so its its existence is inferred from from studying the orbits of various other objects in the solar system. Um, and the solar system is very large. The solar system extends more than one light year out away from the sun, way beyond the orbit of Pluto. And it could be harboring all kinds of objects that are so far away that the sunlight doesn't quite reach them. And even if it reaches them, it doesn't quite, the objects may be dark in color, reddish dark. I mean, lots of, of objects in the uh, trans-Neptunian objects, etc., are reddish in color because of various chemicals, organic chemicals and hydrocarbons. So if an object is reddish or dark in color, then even if you shine a lot of light on it, it it's not going to be easy to find. And especially when it is so far away that the light that reaches it is very dim sunlight. So there are lots of reasons why there could be many, many undiscovered planets and other objects out there in the far reaches of the solar system. It's most likely that we're going to have lots of new discoveries in the coming decades as our abilities to search for such objects get better as we have more powerful telescopes and other techniques. So the reason they are not discovered yet is because they are so far away that they are they'll be that very little sunlight reaches them. The sunlight that reaches them is very faint and they could be dark in color. Their, their, their surface could be dark, which makes it even harder for us to find it. Yes. Okay, I have a lot, lot, lot more questions that I obviously will not be able to take today. Let's take one more. Tanvi says, when we talk about UFOs, we all, always think of them as a disc-shaped structure. How did we come up with specifically that shape? And why did the world accept it as what it is, as the way, the way it is portrayed? Is there any scientific reason for this? There is no scientific reason for a spacecraft or UFO to have a disc structure. Look at the various spacecraft we send into, send into orbit. Look at the various uh, aircraft we have commercial planes, fighter planes, other planes, helicopters, none of them look like disks. Uh, look at the spacecraft we have in, in, in Earth's orbit, the satellites, none of them look like disks. So why do we all think of UFOs as, as disks or saucers? It's because of the early media uh, exposure or coverage of this in the United States. So apparently some pilot observed an object that looked like a flying saucer. Looked like a saucer, saucer shaped, and it was flying. That's what he claimed. And that became a big media sensation. And then you had the Roswell, Roswell incident in which the American military claims it was a weather balloon that crashed. And eyewitnesses said that it was shaped like a saucer or something. So because of this initial media frenzy about the saucer shape, that's why it's always become... Uh, ingrained in the public imagination that UFOs are going to be shaped like saucers. And then people imagine that lots, lots of it is obviously imagined. Lots of it is just false claims. And obviously you also have weather balloons. These are, these are spherical objects that uh, typically go very high up in the atmosphere, maybe 40, 50, 60,000 kilometers, uh, 60,000 meters, not kilometers, meters above the surface. So 40, 50, 60 kilometers above the surface, you know, in the stratosphere and all that. So if you look at such an object from the ground, it's going to look not spherical, but disc-shaped. So that also could co have contributed to the sightings, the reported sightings of disc-shaped UFOs. So it's something that's become part of the popular imagination. The media always portrays it like that. Uh, various uh, science fiction series 
in cartoons and all that they portray it like that uh, whether it is v from the 1980s which was remade in, in the late 2000s whether it is anything else even even the uh, star trek uh, what is it called the uss enterprise is kind of disc shaped so it's become part of the public imagination and consciousness but there is no scientific reason for or need for a ufo or any spacecraft or flying object to have a disc shape all right all right let's take some live chat questions now i have a bunch of other questions which i'm not going to be able to take but let's take some let's take one more saurabh says who am i mind or beyond mind <laughs> this is a philosophical question who am i am i the mind am i something beyond the mind am i this body so we all identify very strongly with the body that we we inhabit but what we truly are is the mind the consciousness right and the, we we know very well that the seat or, or root of the consciousness is the brain right we don't we identify more with our face and our head and our eyes in this region than any other part of the body and our consciousness obviously is connected to the brain i mean if if somebody has a traumatic brain injury the consciousness is lost and the person dies but philosophically <laughs> so there are lots of philosophical schools of thought that give you different answers to this uh scientifically we don't know because science is limited to physical objects and physical phenomena and the and, and empirical evidence but um clearly there is something called consciousness that all living beings share uh, the human consciousness seems to be the highest consciousness but even dogs cats cows turtles fish insects seem to have some level of consciousness well even even microorganisms are aware of their environment and they take steps to protect themselves when a threat appears so there seems to be some level of awareness maybe very rudimentary awareness there and there is obviously the 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 philosophical view especially in hinduism that uh, there is a universal consciousness and we are local manifestations of that it's kind of like quantum field theory where there's a quantum field of <laughs> and and particles are are local excitations in that field so it it kind of is similar to that uh, so we don't have the answers obviously a philosophy tells you certain things it gives you certain answers but there is no scientific evidence for that so obviously you cannot mix science and philosophy certain things are beyond science science cannot answer certain questions right now because it's it is limited because our 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 apparatuses are limited our 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 uh, understanding is limited our intelligence is limited so obviously there's a whole lot out there that science cannot explain and maybe science is not supposed to delve into those matters science only deals with the physical physical universe physical objects and physical phenomena consciousness we're not sure if it's a physical phenomenon the mind and the soul these are spiritual objects non physical objects they are beyond the realm of science so who am i am i mind am i beyond mind i don't know uh, from a scientific perspective uh, i can't say much about that from from a philosophical perspective from the dharmic viewpoint uh, mind is well the soul is eternal and there is a universal consciousness that we are all part of and we are all connected to and everything is conscious to some extent including non living objects as well that's what indian or hindu philosophy tells you so that's two different perspectives i can offer 
Right, let's take some live chat questions. Live chat questions. AJ Rahul says, you are Indian. Ha ha ha. So what do I seem to be? Do I seem to be something else? Not sure if the... <laughs> okay. Okay, if you have any questions, please let me know. Please ask me in the live chat right now. I'll take them for about 5 or 10 minutes from the live chat. Uh, Nishan says, is there any connection between the Vedic god Indra's killing of Vritra and the Sumerian Gilgamesh flood story? There could be, or maybe, maybe, maybe not. See, the Sumerian uh, story is, is def- Sumerian culture, Sumerian, Sumerian mythology may have some connections with ancient Vedic uh, culture and mythology, but uh, it's not really well demonstrated. Uh, and the killing of Vritra did not unleash a flood. It simply, it simply freed the waters of the world. Now, the story is that Vritra was this great serpent, the great Ahi. Ahi is the ancient Sanskrit word for snake, serpent, Ahi. And it, it can also be translated as well, perhaps as dragon. So the great Ahi Vritra had encircled the ocean and all the waters of the world. And there was a big drought as a consequence. So Indra had to go and defeat this great serpent. And he defeated the serpent and the waters were released and the world was well again. But yeah, it, it kind of uh, raises the possibility that initially there could have been a flood. And uh, I think there does seem to be a flood story in ancient Indian mythology as well, which could be a memory of a very ancient flood. So it is a possibility, but we are not able to find a one-to-one correspondence between the the flood epics of, of Sumeria and, and Mesopotamia and the biblical flood epic and uh, flood myth and other flood myths that seem to be a worldwide phenomenon. But there could be a possible connection. We don't know for sure. We need more research. Okay. What other questions do we have? Um, What are those Indian... Yashika says, what are those Indian idols found, found in Colombia? Is Indian culture related to Native Americans by any chance? I'm not sure if I've seen any Indian idols found in Colombia. Obviously, in Colombia, in South America, in Central America as well, in North America as well, you had a polytheistic uh, culture, which was destroyed by the Europeans. And you had, it was polytheistic, and you had idols and representations of various gods and goddesses and divinities. You had Quetzalcoatl, which is the plumed serpent, and many others, yeah? So many of these polytheistic representations of of gods and goddesses and and divinities would look like certain Indian gods. So there seems to be some kind of uh, what you would call circumstantial similarity between the two. But uh, is there any proof, genuine hard evidence that there is a correspondence or or connection? We don't know. So I would not agree that I would not go so far as to call those idols Indian idols thus far from whatever knowledge and evidence we have as of today. In the future, evidence may emerge that there was contact between ancient India and the ancient Americas. There seems to be some some genetic uh, research coming out that could possibly point in that direction, pomegranate uh, genetics and all that. But as of today, we don't quite have enough information to make such a claim as of today. Right. Um, 
Somnath Abhishek says increase of espionage within defense. Are we going to see something big in the region? Espionage is always a big part of defense. What evidence do we have that there is an increase in espionage? Where? In India, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in Sri Lanka, in China? Where exactly? Espionage is never something that is visible. Even if there's a lot of espionage activity going on right now, it's not going to be visible to you and me. We are not supposed to see it. So yeah, I don't know anything. I I am I know only what you all what everybody else knows. I don't have any access to special privileged information that only some people have. I'm not <laughs> I don't have any of that. So yeah, I'm not aware of any increase of espionage, and therefore I don't know. Uh, other questions. I just answered this question. <laughs> Uh, Shaheen says, "How um, we saw how cost-efficient it is to spy on your foe by using balloons. My question is whether our government is doing something similar. If not, how can we develop this strategy? I don't think India is doing any such thing as far as I know. It is indeed cost-efficient to spy on your foes using balloons. Balloons are very hard to detect, especially if they're flying very high. So your radar systems may not detect them. Radar systems are, are, are designed to detect hard objects. Fighter planes and other aerial assets. Balloons are soft objects that, that are not metallic mostly. Almost no metal at all. So it's they, they would easily evade detection by radar and thus, thus they would not trigger any uh, alarms. So yeah, it's it's a good tactic or strategy to use. It, it's going to be useful in some ways. It can loiter over an area and you know give you a lot of detailed imagery of the area. I don't think India is doing that. How can we develop it? Well, build, construct balloons. It's not a very high-tech methodology. Uh, the equipment you can place as a payload on a balloon can be high-tech, but I don't think it's. It, it takes a great deal of technological expertise to to make to to construct a high high-altitude balloon. I'm sure you can develop the technology within six months or a year if you don't have it considering the kind of scientific and, and engineering expertise India has. Why is India not doing this? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Right. Okay. What else? Some other questions. Can we really trust Israel as it is an American satellite state? We can trust Israel to prioritize its national interest. The same way we can trust China to prioritize its national interest and so on. So wherever our national interest converges with Israel's national interest, we can trust them. So obviously we should be able to predict what their perception of their interests is going to be like. And we also have to be cognizant of the fact that there is a significant American influence in Israel. So we should know what the parameters of our cooperation should be, what lines we should not cross and where we should refrain from trusting too much, all those things we should know. So yeah, that's the answer. <clears throat> okay, what else? Do we have other questions? I think there are lots of questions. Many of them I've answered before. Do I follow F1 racing? No, I don't follow F1 racing. I haven't followed it for at least two decades. As a kid, I found it somewhat interesting. I remember uh, these, uh, there used to be these guys. There was a guy called Alain Post, French guy. Ayrton Senna, who tragically died in 1997, I think. Imola, I believe it was. Uh, the great uh, Michael Schumacher, obviously, Niki Lauda, 
and and many other greats. So as a kid, I was kind of interested in it, but afterwards I kind of uh, lost touch and lost interest. So I don't follow it anymore. Uh, where what else do we have? Um, MCU. What's MCU? Marvel Cinematic Universe is it? I saw a couple of origin. I mean, movies initially. I think I saw one or two Iron Man movies. I saw Guardians of the Galaxy or something. I am Groot or whatever. Groot, yeah, Groot, the, the tree, tree fellow. And uh, Dave Batista is that alien with no expression and all that. I saw a couple of these movies. Recently, I saw that Multiverse of Misery, Madness, something. And I saw a movie recently with that red woman, red witch or something. I've seen a few random movies here and there. I don't find them interesting at all. There's no story. It's just rehashing the same old thing. 75 different characters. How can you follow any character arc if there are so many characters? So initially, Iron Man was interesting. The first one was good at least. You know, uh, Spider-Man, I've seen the original two or three Spider-Man movies. The, oh, the previous... the 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 2000s Spider-Man, and so on. I say I've, I've seen a, a few of those, yeah. I've kind of lost interest. It's not interesting. I'm a huge fan of movies, you know. I love I love watching movies. Uh, if I had my way, I would watch two movies every week or in, on the big screen in a cinema. If you if you if the cinemas would show good movies, yeah. But yeah, uh, these days there's nothing nice, and they're not making anything interesting. Okay, do we have any other questions? We have obviously, but. Uh, what are exoplanets and how do scientists search for life on other planets? Exoplanets are planets in orbit around other stars, not the sun. So the, we have thus far found, I think, thousands of exoplanets, planets in orbit around other stars far away from here, from our solar system. So yes, that, that's what an exoplanet is. There are different kinds of exoplanets. There are, there are the gas giants, there are the hot Jupiters, there are Jupiter-sized uh, gas giants in a very tight orbit around, around their star, like orbit that takes 24 hours or less, you know, or maybe a week, even that's a, gas, even that's a hot Jupiter. So that's a planet that's losing its atmosphere, it's boiling off. Then you have rocky terrestrial planets. Then you have planets in the in the in the Goldilocks zone where uh, liquid water can flow, and so on. So that's what exoplanets are. How do scientists search for life on other planets? So they do it through spectroscopy to try and see the spectroscopic uh, makeup of the gases in the atmosphere of a planet. From that, you can infer the existence of water vapor, vapor, maybe nitrogen, maybe ammonia, maybe certain other. Uh, gases that could be could be indicators of the of the existence of life on those planets so thus far we do it through spectroscopic means the james webb space telescope is 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 a good uh, tool for doing this so that's how scientists are searching for life on other planets right now right now we don't quite have the means to do more detailed studies okay my dear friends we are well past 2 hours so i think i'm going to end this session right here. As always, I had many more questions I had selected and I, I was not able to answer them all. But we're going to continue the story. We're going to continue the episodes and I'm, I'm going to answer as many questions of yours as I can every week. So this brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for watching and I will see you very soon next week. Until then, take care and see you soon. Bye.